27, for love and honor. Spoilers all books! Hello listeners, welcome back to Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston, and with me as usual is Yoke Boy from England. Yeah, hi there. Last time we analysed Aegon VI and his upcoming invasion of Westeros. And today we're actually going to turn back the clock and take a really close look at Ned Stark. Starting with a brief history of House Stark up through Ned's childhood and then moving on to Ned's personal code of honour and his relationship with his family. And along the way, we'll take a close look at the tourney of Harrenhal and also consider his decision-making and the politics during Ned's tenure as Robert's Hand. And we'll wrap things up by considering Ned's legacy. And by the way, this is the first in a trio of loosely connected episodes. In our next episode, we'll circle back to Ned's youth when we analyze Robert's rebellion along with our thoughts on King Robert. And we'll be joined by Jim, also known as Something Like a Lawyer, from the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog for that episode. Yeah, and we'll wrap up this mini-series with a very close look at Rob Stark and the War of the Five Kings. We're really looking forward to these next few episodes and hope you are too. But for now, we're ready to focus on Ned. So let's get started with the history of House Stark. When I first came to Winterfell, I was hurt whenever Ned went to the Godswood to sit beneath his heart tree. Part of his soul was in that tree, I knew, a part I would never share. Yet, without that part, I soon realized, he would not have been Ned. So, let's begin today with a brief history of House Stark, up through Ned's youth. Understanding the weight and history of tradition that stands behind the present might help us gain a better understanding of Ned. This is the perfect place for us to review some history that we wouldn't touch upon elsewhere. When we first meet Ned in A Game of Thrones, we aren't aware of the role of his house in the Seven Kingdoms. But in his first point of view chapter, he takes Robert down into the family crypts, and we learn this is an ancient and powerful family. Here's the passage. Their footsteps rang off the stones and echoed in the vault overhead as they walked among the dead of House Stark. The lords of Winterfell watched them pass. Their likenesses were carved into the stones that sealed the tombs. In long rows they sat, blind eyes staring out into eternal darkness, while great stone direwolves curled round their feet. The shifting shadows made the stone figures seem to stir as the living passed by. By ancient custom, an iron longsword had been laid across the lap of each who had been a lord of Winterfell to keep the vengeful spirits in their crypts. The oldest had long ago rusted away to nothing, leaving only a few red stains where the metal had rested on stone. Ned wondered if that meant those ghosts were free to roam the castle now. He hoped not. The first lords of Winterfell had been men hard as the land they ruled. In the centuries before the dragon lords came over the sea, they had sworn allegiance to no man, styling themselves the kings in the north. So, phrases like long rows, ancient custom, and centuries, these are no newcomers to power, and what's more, these are the monuments of hard men who had once been kings of the lands they ruled. And in time, we learn that the present Starks are numbered among the great houses of Westeros and are the descendants of King Torren Stark, the king who knelt, 
to the Targaryen conquerors of Westeros three centuries before to preserve the lives of his men. And while we can piece together a fair amount of the history from references gleaned in Song of Ice and Fire, with the publication of The World of Ice and Fire, we got a much more direct recounting. So let's turn to that next. The Starks, along with most of the other people in the North, are descended from the first men of Westeros. We are told that between 8 and 12 millennia ago, near the end of the Dawn Age, the first men began entering Westeros, then the domain of a people who came to be known as the Children of the Forest. The children were a small fey race whose green seers some alleged could take on the skins of beasts and see through the eyes of the faces they carved into weirwood trees. Yeah, these faces apparently represented their gods. The quote, innumerable gods of the streams and forests and stones. We're told that it was the children who carved the weirwoods with faces, perhaps to give eyes to their gods so that they might watch their worshippers at their devotions. Anyways, the children engaged in warfare with the first men for many generations, before the conflict was ended once and for all, when an agreement known as the Pact was forged at the Isle of Faces, in a grove of weirwoods carved with faces so that the gods might bear witness. And with the Pact, the first men were ceded control of all of Westeros except for the deep forests, which were reserved for the children, and apparently around this time, whether through fear, respect, or simply assimilation, the first men began to worship the old gods, a tradition which would continue for millennia into the present story, where the Starks and other Northmen are the last holdouts in the old religion in the face of the new gods brought to Westeros by later invaders. The pact ended the Dawn Age and ushered in the so-called Age of Heroes. And legend has it that Stark dominion over at least parts of the North extends back 8,000 years to their founder, Bran the Builder, who was just one of many legendary heroes whose names come down from that age. Bran the Builder is reputed to have built not only Winterfell, but the Wall too, for which he apparently enlisted the aid of the Children of the Forest after learning to speak their indigenous language and possibly with the help of the giants too. Other tales tell that Bran the Builder helped with the building of Storm's End and the High Tower in Old Town. According to some stories, he's the descendant of Garth Greenhand, the legendary first of all First Men in Westeros, via his son, Brandon of the Bloody Blade, a famous warrior credited with killing many giants and children of the forest in the Wars of the First Men. Well, legends are often uncertain, and the timelines sometimes don't make sense, but it seems clear that Garth was a semi-godlike character, often credited with bringing farming and fertility to the land. In this sense, it makes sense that all the ruling houses of Westeros would attempt to trace their lineage back to him, in the same way leaders in our own history would often trace their own descent back to Odin, or Zeus, or even Adam and Eve. And of course, one of the most confusing things about the Age of Heroes is the timing of the Long Night and the building of the Wall. 
We talked a bit about this in our Long Night episode and reached the conclusion that, whatever the truth of the matter, the Starks were instrumental in the battle for the dawn and that the last hero may have even been a Stark, which, combined with the claim that the wall was built by Bran to guard the realms of men from threats out of the north, and Old Nan's assertion that the Night's King may also have been a Stark, really puts the family front and centre of some of the key legendary moments of Westeros. Yes, it does. So the Starks were styled Kings of Winter during this time, and probably beyond, but in the centuries following their conquest of such ancient northern dynasties as the Barrow Kings of the Barrowlands, the Marsh Kings of the Neck, the Red Kings of the Dreadfort, and the fabled Warg King of Sea Dragon Point, they became known as the Kings in the North. And having consolidated their hold upon the North with centuries of marriage alliances and brutal warfare against their rivals, the Starks proceeded to defend it from generations of Andal invaders and Ironborn raiders. In this, they were aided by the topography of their territory, as no Andal army could ever break past Moat Caelin, though there were threats along their coastline from Ironborn reavers to the west and Andals from the east. The Starks protected the mouth of the White Knife, which could have provided invaders an inroad into the heart of the north, at the fortress known as the Wolf's Den for centuries, until the arrival of the Mandalese from the Reach a thousand years ago. After squaring fealty to House Stark, the Mandalese built White Harbour, which offered a stronger defence of that area. And all during these years, Stark kings bearing names such as Brandon the Breaker, Theon the Hungry Wolf, Rickard the Laughing Wolf, Edric Snowbeard and his son Brandon Ice Eyes fought off invaders and kept the North the domain of the First Men. It was King Torrin Stark who marched his host of Northmen out of the Neck to meet the final invader to threaten the land, the Valyrian warlord Aegon Targaryen. By the time the northern host arrived at the Trident to meet the Targaryen one, Aegon had won great fiery victories at the Field of Fire and Harrenhal. There, as Cat tells Rob in A Storm of Swords, Torrin Stark bent the knee to Aegon the Conqueror rather than see his army face the fires. And as Jamie Lannister puts it, Torrin brought his power south after the fall of the two kings on the field of fire. But when he saw Aegon's dragon and the size of his host, he chose the path of wisdom and bent his frozen knees. And in the generations that followed, the Starks continued to be great lords, now called Wardens of the North, holding their territory in fealty to the dragon kings, but in reality left to their own devices and continuing in much the same way they always had as rulers. Only two Targaryen kings ever visited the north that we know of, King Jaehaerys and young Aegon V many years before he took the throne. 
The Starks were involved in putting down rebellions on their territories, protecting their northern border from wildling incursions, and in a few instances in the politics and wars of the South, such as the Dance of the Dragons, where Lord Cregan Stark pledged his support to Rhaenyra Targaryen and her blacks in exchange for the agreement that a Targaryen princess would marry into the Stark family. Known as the Pact of Ice and Fire, this marriage would have been the only known union between Stark and Targaryen. And while that union never did come to pass, Lord Cregan eventually served as Hand of the King to Rhaenyra's son, Aegon III, for six short days, known afterwards as the Hour of the Wolf, during which he sat in judgment on the men who had poisoned Aegon II, sending 20 men accused in the plot to the wall and executing two others. Having delivered his stern northern version of justice in his young king's name, Lord Cregan returned to the north and reigned there a further 26 years. His descendants continued to join in the conflicts of the Seven Kingdoms, with his son Rickon dying beneath the banner of the young dragon in Dawn, and his grandson Baron making common cause with the Lord of Casterly Rock to defeat Dagon Greyjoy. And so it went until Ned's day, with lords fighting and dying, making marriage alliances with fellow northern families, and fending off dynastic struggles. But Ned's father, Rickard, himself married to a Stark cousin in a family that, as far as we know, had never married outside of the First Men, except to the famously loyal Manderleys of White Harbor, plotted a different course across the history of the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah, we're not going to go into Rickard's so-called southern ambitions here, although we will touch upon them in our next episode, which will be all about Robert and Robert's Rebellion. But we will point out that Rickard planned to marry two of his children to Southerners, Catelyn Tully and Robert Baratheon. Although it's never mentioned that he was involved, we wonder if he met their fathers, Hoster Tully and Stefan Baratheon, in the War of the Ninepenny Kings, where they are both noted to have fought. What is clear is that Rickard made these plans and fostered his young son Ned with Lord Arryn in the Vale along with Robert Baratheon of Storm's End, apparently with the goal of making grand alliances with his southern friends and neighbours such as never had been made before by his family. And so we come to Ned's childhood. Raised at Winterfell with his two brothers, the elder Brandon and younger Benjamin, and sister Lyanna, Ned was sent to the Airy at a young age. He remained there until reaching manhood, during which time he forged abiding friendships with Robert Baratheon and his foster father, John Arryn. From the age of 16 onwards, he apparently divided his time between Winterfell and the Airy. What his father's marriage plans for him may have been, we'll never know, for in his 18th year, fate intervened with Lord Rickard's plans. Yeah, that's right. It was the year of the false spring when Lord Went announced his great tourney at Harrenhal and Ned was 18, coming, quote, down from the Erie to attend with Robert and John Arryn. It was a great event. Ned's brothers and sister were there, most of the lords of the realm, and the king and crown prince as well. It was a pivotal moment in the history of the Seven Kingdoms, and is the subject of most of our next segment. But first, to lead us in, 
Here's a few words from Mira Reed setting the stage. A great tourney was about to commence, and champions from all over the land had come to contest it. The king himself was there, with his son the Dragon Prince. The White Swords had come to welcome a new brother to their ranks. The Storm Lord was on hand, and the Rose Lord as well. The Great Lion of the Rock had quarreled with the king and stayed away, but many of his bannermen and knights attended all the same. In A Game of Thrones, when Ned is imprisoned in the Black Cells, he has a fevered memory of the year of the false spring and the tourney of Harrenhal. Now, we've covered this from one perspective in our RLJ episode, and we'll go into more depth in our next episode on Robert Baratheon. And because we'll be covering the rebellion in depth in that episode, we're really only going to highlight some key moments here while we focus on Ned's experience and what the outcome of Rhaegar and Lyanna and the rebellion meant for him. Yeah, and while we'll discuss mainly R plus L in this segment, it should not be underestimated that Ned's entire life was affected by the outcome of the tourney of Harrenhal. Had Brandon and Lyanna lived to marry Catelyn and Robert, Ned no doubt would have married elsewhere, perhaps Barbary Dustin or perhaps a southerner like his siblings, and would have forged an entirely different life for himself in a seven kingdoms still under Targaryen rule. So Ned recalls the tourney and its attendees, and then comes a passage that gives us our first connection between Blue Roses, something Ned has repeatedly associated with his dead sister Lyanna, and Rhaegar Targaryen. Here's the passage. Yet when the jousting began, the day belonged to Rhaegar Targaryen. The crown prince wore the armor he would die in, gleaming black plate with the three-headed dragon of his house wrought in rubies on the breast. A plume of scarlet silk streamed behind him when he rode, and it seemed no lance could touch him. Brandon fell to him, and Bronzion Royce, and even the splendid Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning. Robert had been jesting with John and Old Lord Hunter as the prince circled the field after unhorsing Sir Barristan in the final tilt to claim the champion's crown. Ned remembered the moment when all the smiles died, when Prince Rhaegar Targaryen urged his horse past his own wife, the Dornish princess Elia Martel, to lay the Queen of Beauty's laurel in Lyanna's lap. He could see it still, a crown of winter roses, blue as frost. Up until this moment, Rhaegar had been introduced as the vanquished Targaryen foe, who is connected with Lyanna Stark's mysterious death. Early on, Robert's continuing rage gave us this hint. And Rhaegar... How many times do you think he raped your sister? How many hundreds of times? Well, a few chapters later, Bran repeats the tale he's heard for Osha in the Winterfell crypts. Robert was betrothed to marry her, but Prince Rhaegar carried her off and raped her. Robert fought a war to win her back. He killed Rhaegar on the trident with his hammer, but Lyanna died and he never got her back at all. Hmm, but here, with Ned's mind laid bare, we get the first hint of romance and tragedy. Those blue roses have symbolized Lyanna and Lyanna's death, or the cause of it, in Ned's mind since his first point of view chapter. 
The revelation that Rhaegar gave her blue roses is perplexing at the least, and upon reflection, utterly contradictory to what we've been led to believe. With that contradiction in mind, we'll look at Ned's memories of Harrenhal, Rhaegar Targaryen, and the Rebellion. Interestingly, that one memory or dream in the Black Cells is the only time Ned thinks of Harrenhal specifically. And his silence on the matter doesn't go unremarked either in A Storm of Swords when Mira Reed sets out to tell Bran a story about a special knight. There was one knight, Mira said, in the year of the false spring, the knight of the laughing tree, they called him. He might have been a Cranagman, that one. Or not. Jojen's face was dappled with green shadows. Prince Bran has heard that tale a hundred times, I'm sure. And Bran insists that he hasn't, yet twice again as Mira tells the story, Jojen interrupts to ask Bran if he's sure his father has never told him this tale. So we've been pointed at something that we should really think carefully about. Ned attended one of the greatest tourneys in his and his children's lifetimes, along with lords and ladies and a king and a prince. And yet this man, who we're told early in the Game of Thrones, loved to tell stories to his children, never once mentioned it to them. Given Bran in particular had dreams of knighthood and Sansa's love of romantic stories, the only conclusion is that this memory is so painful or dangerous that Ned has purposely avoided bringing it up around his family. Yeah, it's hard not to arrive at the conclusion that Jojen's surprise indicates there is something significant to House Stark in this tale and that Ned's failure to tell it indicates grief or danger, or perhaps both. So Mira tells Bran the story of the Knight of the Laughing Tree, and of course many in the fandom have reached the conclusion that he was actually Lyanna Stark, disguised to get justice for her friend Howland. We discussed in our RLJ episode how the Knight of the Laughing Tree's courageous and honourable act may have led the Dragon Prince to honour her in turn with the Queen of Love and Beauty's crown in lieu of the Champion's Laurel. But what of Ned's experience? Clearly the outcome of the tourney was a source of some distress for him, as the murky saga of Rhaegar and Lyanna was no doubt a result of their interactions at Harrenhal. And the world of ice and fire gave a little insight, though, as usual, we have to read between the lines and understand that the author of that recounting is not impartial, and his history has been tailored for the benefit of first Robert and now Tommen, and his assumptions and suggestions are often erroneous or pandering to Lannister interests. But here's what Maester Yandel tells us about Rhaegar crowning Lyanna. Brandon Stark, the heir to Winterfell, had to be restrained from confronting Rhaegar at what he took as a slight upon his sister's honor, for Lyanna Stark had long been betrothed to Robert Baratheon, Lord of Storm's End. Eddard Stark, Brandon's younger brother and a close friend to Robert, was calmer, but no more pleased. As for Robert Baratheon himself, some say he laughed at the prince's gesture, claiming that Rhaegar had done no more than pay Lyanna her due, but those who knew him better say the young lord brooded on the insult and that his heart hardened toward the Prince of Dragonstone from that day forth. 
Given what we know of the character of these three, it's probably pretty accurate to accept the report of their reactions at face value, but minus the subjective interpretation of their states of mind. That is, Brandon, the wild wolf, may indeed have raged, while Eddard, the quiet wolf, was no doubt reserved. Keeping in mind that both brothers may have known of their sister's deception as the Knight of the Laughing Tree, it's easy to imagine their reactions may have come from sources other than what Yandel attributes them to. And for the record, Robert probably did laugh exactly as reported, but we think it might not be surprising if his reported brooding is somewhat revisionist and only came about following Liana's disappearance. So, while we know Ned thinks of it as the moment when all the smiles died, other than that, there's really no overt evidence from either Ned's own point of view or reliable witnesses of the level of distress he suffered over Rhaegar's actions. Surely he might have told the tragic story to his family if he, like Robert, simply believed that Rhaegar was an evil kidnapping rapist. The fact that he didn't indicates there might be more to the tale, which brings us to Ned's thoughts about Rhaegar. Yeah, let's talk about Ned's thoughts about Rhaegar and the Rebellion. In our RLJ episode, we went through all of Ned's thoughts about Rhaegar, leading off with the quote, for the first time in years, he found himself remembering Rhaegar Targaryen in Eddard 9 over Game of Thrones. We showed how Ned had actually thought of or mentioned Rhaegar in six of his previous eight POV chapters. In fact, there's more mentions of Rhaegar in Ned's POV chapters than from any other single POV in game, and none of them are negative. So the conclusion is that the line wasn't meant to indicate that this was literally the first time he had remembered Rhaegar in years, but that it was the first time he had thought of him in a particular way, related to his present situation. And this was the occasion when Littlefinger brought him to a brothel to meet Barra, Robert's youngest bastard, and so the next line gives us a big hint as to what he's thinking. He wondered if Rhaegar had frequented brothels. Somehow, he thought not. And we wondered if the difference was that... For the first time in years, Ned allowed himself to think of Rhaegar as John's father. Consider that this meeting with Barra's mother and the promise she had begged of him reminded him of his sister Liana pleading on her deathbed and smiling when he had made his promises. But when he gave her his word, the fear had gone out of his sister's eyes Ned remembered the way she had smiled then, how tightly her fingers had clutched his as she gave up her hold on life. And the young woman's reaction is so similar to Lyanna's and interestingly evokes a mental image of Jon Snow. She smiled then, a smile so tremulous and sweet that it cut the heart right out of him. Riding through the rainy night, Ned saw Jon Snow's face in front of him, so like a younger version of his own. If the gods frowned so on bastards, he thought dully, why did they fill men with such lusts? 
So as we said in the RLG episode, we think this is evidence of Ned's agony about what he's done with John to protect him from Robert's wrath. We know from the previous chapter that Ned is still disturbed by Robert's hatred of Rhaegar. Suddenly, uncomfortably, he found himself recalling Rhaegar Targaryen, 15 years dead, yet Robert still hates him as much as ever. It was a disturbing notion. And as if to prove that he doesn't share that hatred, Ned's thoughts have now gone from his sister to promises to Jon Snow, to bastards in brothels, to Rhaegar Targaryen, and interestingly arrive at the conclusion that Rhaegar would not have frequented brothels. Surely, if Ned believed that Rhaegar had kidnapped and raped his beloved sister, he wouldn't reach such a charitable conclusion. And there's another thing that the analysis of all the mentions of Rhaegar in Ned's point of view revealed. Almost everyone came at a time when Ned was stressed about the safety of children, whether it was Sansa or Bran, Daenerys, Baby Barra, or Cersei's brood. There's a very clear chain of association in Ned's thoughts between Lyanna, Promises, Blue Roses, Rhaegar, and Danger to Children. And given the presence of Lyanna, Rhaegar, and those blue roses connecting them in the tales of Harrenhal, the conclusion that can be drawn from Ned's refusal to talk about it is that there is some danger there, most likely danger to a child. Ned preferred to never speak of his sister and allow his family to live in ignorance of the story of Harrenhal and the true manner of Lyanna's disappearance and later death, rather than betray his promise to Lyanna. Yeah, as he left the brothel, he thought, quote, of the promises he'd made Lyanna as she lay dying and the price he'd paid to keep them. Was part of that price Jon Snow's status in the world, remembering how grimly he thought about the fate of bastards in the eyes of the gods? And was another part his own honor, remembering the lies he would have had to tell to keep Jon's secret safe? Was still another part the sacrifice of the true story of Rhaegar and Lyanna, consigning their reputations to the unfair judgment of a history that would never be in possession of all the facts? And we think it's probably all of the above. And we have to wonder how much of Ned's regret and increasing disillusion with Robert all ties back to events set in motion 17 years previously at that tourney, given some of the ideas we put forth in our RLJ episode. First, that there was genuine respect and romance between the pair, and second, that Rhaegar's so-called abduction may have actually been a rescue. Yeah, we did discuss some interesting clues pointing in that direction, not the least of which is the conclusion that if Ares had discovered the truth behind the Night of the Laughing Tree's identity, in his paranoia, he may have called for the arrest of Lyanna Stark, given his assertion at the tourney that the knight was, quote, no friend of his. And if the king called for the arrest of a high-born maiden, the daughter of one of the realm's lords paramount and the betrothed of another, 
Might the crown prince have tried to rescue her, to save his father from his own madness, and the life of a young girl, too? In support of this, we noticed something recently in the small council meeting where Ned is challenging Robert on his plan to send assassins after Daenerys Targaryen. Here's the passage. Whereas Daenerys is a 14-year-old girl, Ned knew he was pushing this well past the point of wisdom, yet he could not keep silent. Robert, I ask you, what did we rise against Ares Targaryen for, if not to put an end to the murder of children? Okay, and so besides the close similarity in age between Danny and Lyanna, we were struck by the reference to, quote, the murder of children. It seemed an oddly specific comment until we considered it in light of this theory. And since we wondered if Rhaegar had sent a warning to Lord Rickard at Winterfell, which might account for Brandon's mad rush to King's Landing, as he was in the Riverland and wouldn't have known about any secret messages, it's possible that Ned knew about it too, and held Ares responsible, rather than Rhaegar. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to consider that. And like most theories about R plus L, this one raises some questions, but it also offers some explanations that are lacking elsewhere, so we definitely like to keep it in mind. Another thing we should remember is that not long before Lyanna's desperate plea was made to a brother at the place Rhaegar had named the Tower of Joy, and which remained a, quote, bitter memory for Ned all these years later, Ned had witnessed his friend Robert turn away from the bloody corpses of Rhaegar's two young children. They had quarrelled and, quote, Ned had named that murder, Robert called it war, when he had protested that the young prince and princess were no more than babes. His new-made king had replied, I see no babes, only dragonspawn. So, in light of the fact that Ned thinks Robert's hatred of the Targaryens was a madness in him, we think the outcome of the scene at the Tower of Joy was a given. Ned promised his sister to protect her child because he knew of the danger it would be in from Robert. And he would have to go to any length to do that, including lying to his own family. And in our next segment, we'll be taking a look at Ned's family life, including his relationship with Catelyn and his role as a father. And as we'll see, the promises he made to Lyanna would come to have an enormous impact on that life, a life that was forever changed by the outcome of events at the tourney of Harrenhal. Which is why, in spite of the misleading for the first time in years quote, we think the Ned quote most reflective of his experience with Rhaegar is probably the day belonged to Rhaegar Targaryen. The sequence of events set in motion by Rhaegar at the tourney of Harrenhal led to a profound change in the course of Ned's life, in which sense it was Rhaegar who won the day in spite of his defeat and death. And now, to lead us into our next section, here's a few words from Ned on his philosophy of pack dynamics. Let me tell you something about wolves, child. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies. 
but the pack survives. Summer is the time for squabbles. In winter, we must protect one another, keep each other warm, share our strengths. So, when Ned Stark returned to Winterfell from Robert's Rebellion, he brought a child with him. Claiming the infant boy as his own, Ned installed Jon Snow and his wet nurse at Winterfell before his young wife Catelyn and their true-born son, Rob, arrived from the Riverlands. From Cat's memories, we learned that Ned would not speak of the mother, not so much as a word. And also, whoever Jon's mother had been, Ned must have loved her fiercely, for nothing Catelyn said would persuade him to send the boy away. And that she did try to persuade him is also evident from her memories, as she goes on to think. It was the one thing she could never forgive him. She had come to love her husband with all her heart, but she never found it in her to love John. She might have overlooked a dozen bastards for Ned's sake, so long as they were out of sight. John was never out of sight, and as he grew, he looked more like Ned than any of the true-born sons she bore him. So, Catelyn resents John's resemblance to Ned, which is often remarked in the books. She also recalls her early curiosity about John's mother and the rumors she heard in those early days about the Lady Ashara Dane. She thinks of the moment when she finally asked Ned about Ashara. Quote, That was the only time in all their years that Ned had ever frightened her. Never ask me about John, he said, cold as ice. He is my blood, and that is all you need to know. And now I will learn where you heard that name, my lady. She had pledged to obey, she told him, and from that day on, the whispering had stopped, and Ashara Dane's name was never heard in Winterfell again. So many fans have wondered about the relationship between Ned and Ashara Dane, whom Catelyn thinks of as the Lady Ashara Dane, tall and fair, with haunting violet eyes. Some continue to wonder if Ned and Ashara could be John's parents. In support of this, they point to Mira Reed's tale of Harrenhal, where she mentions that the Cranogman saw a maid with laughing purple eyes dance with a white sword, a red snake, and the Lord of Griffins, and lastly with the quiet wolf. But only after the wild wolf spoke to her on behalf of a brother too shy to leave his bench. And the idea has taken hold that Ned had a youthful crush on Ashara, who was the sister of the famed king's guard, Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, and a lady-in-waiting to Princess Ilya Martell of Dorne, the wife of Rhaegar Targaryen. In A Storm of Swords, when Arya meets young Edric Dane of Starfall, he tells her... My Aunt Illyria says Lady Ashara and your father fell in love at Harrenhal. And a doubtful Arya asks Harwin for the truth. Harwin tells her, It's an old tale, that one. I heard it once at Winterfell, when I was no older than you are now. I doubt there's any truth to it. But if there is, what of it? When Ned met this Dornish lady, his brother Brandon was still alive, and it was him betrothed to Lady Catelyn. So there's no stain on your father's honor. There's not like a tourney to make the blood run hot. So maybe some words were whispered in a tent of a night. Who can say? Words or kisses, maybe more. Where's the harm in that? Spring had come, or so they thought, and neither one of them was pledged. So it seems that perhaps Harwin heard the same whisperings 
cat did long ago at Winterfell, whisperings that were halted by stern words from Ned. Even Cersei repeats the rumour to Ned in A Game of Thrones when they meet in the King's Landing, Godswood. It says, How dare you play the noble lord with me? What do you take me for? You've a bastard of your own. I've seen him. Who was the mother, I wonder? Some Dornish peasant you raped while her holdfast burned? A whore? Or was it the grieving sister, the Lady Ashara? She threw herself into the sea, I'm told. Why was that? For the brother you slew, or the child you stole? (laughs) And so, while it seems little enough to go on, some remain convinced that Ned had a youthful passion for Ashardane, supported by the fact that after the fight at the Tower of Joy, he journeyed to Starfall to return the sword Dawn to the Dane family, and that Ashara threw herself into the sea out of grief not long after. Edric Dane tells Arya, Lady Ashara was my aunt. I never knew her, though. She threw herself into the sea from atop the pale stone sword before I was born. And his question to Arya, Your lord father never spoke of her? The Lady Ashara Dane? Of Starfall? Almost seems to imply there is a connection between her suicide and Ned. Of course, Edric also comes right out and tells Arya that his wet nurse, Wyla, is Jon Snow's mother. So clearly his accounting is a bit confused. But anyway, it's from the POV of Barristan Selmy that we get even more information in A Dance with Dragons when he recalls his own passion for Lady Ashara. But Ashara's daughter had been stillborn and his fair lady had thrown herself from a tower soon after, mad with grief for the child she had lost and perhaps for the man who had dishonoured her at Harrenhal as well. She died never knowing that Sir Barristan had loved her. How could she? He was a knight of the King's Guard, sworn to celibacy. No good could have come from telling her his feelings. No good came from silence either. If I had unhorsed Rhaegar and crowned Ashara Queen of Love and Beauty... Might she have looked to me instead of Stark? So, Ashara allegedly bore a stillborn daughter, and there's a hinted connection to Stark, and her grief was for the child as well as for, quote, the man who had dishonored her at Harrenhal. Many have pointed out that Barristan seems to bear no ill will for Ned, and even made an attempt to convince Danny of his honor in A Storm of Swords. So could it have been Brandon he was referring to? Given that Barristan doesn't explicitly connect them, was the man who dishonored Ashara necessarily even the same Stark that she, quote, looked to? Well, we think that Ashara Dane is meant to be a giant red herring in the mystery of John's parentage, and that all things considered, if she had a relationship with any Stark, it was more likely to be Brandon. Although, as Harwin pointed out, Even if it was Ned, there was no inherent dishonour because neither was betrothed to another at the time. And so, whether her apparent suicide was simply another of the tragic consequences of the tourney of Harrenhal, or a cover for a deeper mystery, remains to be seen. Hmm, yes it does. But this brings us back to Jon Snow and the question of his parentage. 
while Catelyn never knew the identity of John's mother, that she wondered about it and resented John's resemblance to Ned until the end of her days is shown in this passage from A Clash of Kings. Her own children had more Tully about them than Stark. Arya was the only one to show much of Ned in her features, and Jon Snow, but he was never mine. She found herself thinking of Jon's mother, that shadowy secret love her husband would never speak of. Does she grieve for Ned as I do? Or did she hate him for leaving her bed for mine? Does she pray for her son as I have prayed for mine? They were uncomfortable thoughts and futile. If John had been born of a Shire Dane of Starfall, as some whispered, the lady was long dead. If not, Catelyn had no clue who or where his mother might be. And it made no matter. Ned was gone now, and his loves and his secrets had all died with him. Although fans have pointed out that there remain a certain few characters in the story who might possess some knowledge of Ned's secrets, people like Howland Reed, the wet nurse Wyler, and maybe even the three-eyed crow Brynden Rivers. And speaking of secrets, when Ned thinks about the secret John Arryn died for in game, he muses... Some secrets are safer kept hidden. Some secrets are too dangerous to share, even with those you love and trust. Hmm, so is the dangerous secret that of Jon Snow's origin? In his final days, when in the Black Cells, we may see Ned's regret that he left Jon in the dark about it. It says... The thought of John filled Ned with a sense of shame and a sorrow too deep for words if only he could see the boy again, sit and talk with him. And all things considered, we're left with the conclusion that it was the secret behind John's birth that was so dangerous that Ned never dared to share it with Catelyn, even though by all accounts they developed a close and loving relationship. And it's that relationship and his role as father that we're going to consider now. We know that Kat really loved Ned. She thinks numerous times about her love for her husband, including, After the war, at Winterfell, I had love enough for any woman, once I found the good sweetheart beneath Ned's solemn face. While most of what we know about Ned's relationship with his wife comes from Catelyn's own POV, we see from his own how much he trusts and respects her when he consults her about Robert's offer of the handship and ultimately leaves her in charge of Winterfell. Yeah, and when Cat arrives in King's Landing, not only is their reunion poignant and tender, but he sends her back to Winterfell with instructions to keep their sons safe and see to the defenses of the North and keep a careful watch over Theon Greyjoy. And he himself assures her that he'll take care of the girls. In fact, their deep love and affection for all of their children is really evident from both of their POVs. That's right. We see Ned time and again concerned with the well-being of his children, especially the girls, from Arya's mishap on the Trident and her continued feud with Sansa to her disappearance from the Red Keep and his later fears for their safety during his quarrel with Robert and imprisonment in the wake of Robert's death. And it's well known that Ned chose Sansa's well-being over his own honour when it came to confessing his alleged treason to Joffrey. 
but we want to take some time to look at the dynamics of the family itself, the way the children view their father, and contrast that with what we see in another high-profile family from Westeros. Right. From the start, we see Bran draw a contrast between Lord Stark and father, with father being the man who would, quote, sit before the fire in the evening and talk softly of the age of heroes and the children of the forest, while Lord Stark delivers justice with a stern and grim manner. Ned, as father, is someone who loves his children and, by all evidence, has earned their respect and affection in return, And while we're able to guess at the high level of affection he had for his own siblings, it's made very clear that he's raised his children to have a similar closeness. Yeah, that's clear amongst the brothers, especially Rob and John, and between Arya and her brothers as well. When Arya thinks of how much she misses her brothers, we see how close they are. It says... She wanted to tease Bran and play with baby Rickon and have Rob smile at her. She wanted John to muss up her hair and call her little sister and finish her sentences with her. And even though Arya and Sansa just don't seem to get along, we do get a hint from Sansa in A Storm of Swords that there were times when their sisterly squabbles just seemed like good plain fun. Here's the passage. She remembered a summer snow in Winterfell when Arya and Bran had ambushed her as she emerged from the keep one morning. They'd each had a dozen snowballs to hand, and she'd had none. Bran had been perched on the roof of the covered bridge out of reach, but Sansa had chased Arya through the stables and around the kitchen until both were breathless. She might even have caught her, but she'd slipped on some ice. Her sister came back to see if she was hurt. When she said she wasn't, Arya hit her in the face with another snowball, but Sansa grabbed her leg and pulled her down and was rubbing snow in her hair when Jory came along and pulled them apart, laughing. Yes, Sansa is feeling nostalgic during her time in the Eyrie, and she thinks of her family quite a bit, including her sister Arya and bastard half-brother Jon Snow. In the meantime... Aya is in Bravos doing the same thing. When she has to hide her sword Needle, she thinks, Needle was Rob and Bran and Rickon, her mother and her father, even Sansa. Needle was Winterfell's grey walls and the laughter of its people. Needle was the summer snows, old Nan's stories, the heart tree with its red leaves and scary face, the warm earthy smell of the glass gardens, the sound of the north wind rattling the shutters of her room. Needle was Jon Snow's smile. Hey, and the girls aren't the only ones thinking longingly of the family they'd lost. Bran and Jon think of their missing sisters and dead brothers often. Taken all together, the picture of the Stark family that we get is that of a close-knit group with the usual sibling rivalries, but almost certainly a family which would heed their father's advice to Arya about troubled times. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Summer is the time for squabbles. In winter, we must protect one another, keep each other warm, share our strengths. Yeah, and that's a great quote. And this closeness must be a testament to the parents of the family. And we'd argue that the example of love and kindness they absorbed from their father contributed enormously to the familial bond between the siblings. 
And by way of contrast, let's review something we talked about in an earlier episode, the theme of love versus fear as it relates to fatherhood. Yeah, you might recall that we discussed this in our Tywin episode. George contrasts Ned and Tywin in A Game of Thrones and afterwards through their children and legacies using this theme. Tywin ruled his home life and his children with an iron hand and a series of sharp lessons, while Ned is shown accepting his children for who they are, whether it be Bran, the inveterate climber, Arya, the incorrigible tomboy, or Sansa, the wistful dreamer. Ned tries to alleviate the tensions between Sansa and Arya, while Tywin actively fostered the animosity between Cersei and Tyrion. Right, Ned's lessons definitely have more of a philosophical bent than Tywin's more punitive ones. And our guest for that episode, Ragnarok, pointed out that the result was that the Starks see Winterfell as a manifestation of their family, as a home. Well, the Lannisters kind of view Castly Rock as a prize to be vied for. As Ragnarok put it, the stark yearning for Winterfell is the call of home, while Lannister desire for Castly Rock is a lust for power. Hmm. <laughs> And this theme can be viewed again in a more subtle way by those who've picked up on the clues for Jon Snow's parentage and the ambiguous hints at Tyrion's. As we pointed out, Ned is a positive father figure in Jon's life, and fatherhood is explored through a series of foster figures throughout his arc. Jon thinks, Lord Eddard Stark is my father. I will not forget him no matter how many swords they give me. So does this become any less true if he learns that Rhaegar Targaryen was actually his sire? On the other hand, taking Jaime's lack of filial feeling for Tywin and Tyrion's highly charged relationship with his father into account, we see a flip side to this. Jaime is a well-known knight, while Tyrion declares himself to be Tywin writ small which contrasts nicely with Rob's leadership of the North and Jon Snow's noted similarities to Ned. Yet neither seem to have the same sense of connection Ned's children have with him. Tywin and Ned have both achieved a desired legacy with their children, but only Ned appears to have the love and affection of his, making him arguably the more successful parent. So George has masterfully shown us all sides of this coin and made Ned the father of the story. From him flows not only four of the main point-of-view characters, but much of the tension and drama. Even as far afield as Marine, Daenerys has an admittedly highly colored opinion of Lord Stark and his actions. Closer to home, Ned's honor and values are legendary, and his actions and lessons continue to affect the story right up through A Dance with Dragons and We're Sure Beyond. Up next, we'll be talking all about Ned's honor and justice Stark style. Here are some words from Ned himself to lead us in. The blood of the first men still flows in the veins of the Starks, and we hold to the belief that the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. If you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words. 
And if you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps the man does not deserve to die. So, Ned Stark's honor is well known in the books and has been remarked upon by characters from Winterfell to Essos. Robert mentions it in Game of Thrones, as does Cersei, Tyrion, Varys, and Littlefinger, who mentions Ned's honor, but later tells Sansa that her father was, quote, hopeless. Jorah Mormont spoke scathingly of Ned's precious honor, but later indicated that it was he himself who was lost to honor when he fled Ned's judgment. Yeah, Ned's honour is something Jon Snow thinks of frequently as he tries to reconcile his father's famed honour with fathering a bastard. Stannis tells Jon that his father was stubborn and no friend of mine, but that only a fool would doubt his honour or his honesty. So this idea that Ned is the most honourable man in the Seven Kingdoms is really well established, although we see quite a bit of scorn for it from the players. And at the same time, there are plenty of hints that Ned would abandon honour in a good cause. Some of them quite sly, like Robert suggesting that John's mother... Must have been a rare wench if she could make Lord Eddard Stark forget his honour. Which really echoes Kat's thoughts that whoever John's mother was, Ned must have loved her fiercely. And then there's this exchange between Jon Snow and Maester Aemon. Tell me, Jon, if the day should ever come when your lord father must needs choose between honour on the one hand and those he loves on the other, what would he do? Jon hesitated. He wanted to say that Lord Eddard would never dishonor himself, not even for love, yet inside a small sly voice whispered, He fathered a bastard. Where was the honor in that? And your mother, what of his duty to her? He will not even say her name. He would do whatever was right, John said, ringingly, to make up for his hesitation, no matter what. Then Lord Eddard is a man in ten thousand. Most of us are not so strong. What is honor compared to a woman's love? What is duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms, or the memory of a brother's smile? Wind and words, wind and words. We are only human, and the gods have fashioned us for love. That is our great glory and our great tragedy. So with those words, Eamon cleverly suggests that family... A woman, a child, a sibling might come before this abstract idea of honour for some. And note the connection to John's mother again. In this passage, George not only looks at the past with subtle hints about the nature of Ned's original dishonour, but also foreshadows Ned's death and his motivations in sacrificing his honour by confessing to a false crime. For the sake of his daughter Sansa, the Honourable Eddard Stark would confess to treason and would have given up his titles and fortune to preserve her life in much the same way that he, quote, dishonoured himself in the eyes of gods and men by claiming the bastard Jon Snow as his own for all the North to see. That things turned out much differently than Ned expected perhaps lends weight to the scorn he received from people like Barris, Littlefinger, and Renly, who told Catelyn, 
I liked your husband well enough, my lady. He was a loyal friend to Robert, I know, but he would not listen and he would not bend. Perhaps one of Ned's faults was expecting others to keep their word as he himself would do. Certainly, Renly isn't alone in seeming to suggest that Ned brought his fate upon himself. But in spite of those opinions, Ned Stark was an honest and fair, if hard, man who delivered justice in the time-honored manner of the North. As he told Bran in A Game of Thrones, Our way is the older way. The blood of the first men still flows in the veins of the Starks, and we hold to the belief that the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. Of northern ways, the world of ice and fire tells us, the Northmen still retain something of the old ways in their customs and their manner. Their life is harder, and so they are hardened by it, and the pleasures that in the South are considered noble are thought childish and less worthy. So it's reasonable to deduce that northern honour might be different than southern honour, less about chivalry and knighthood, which are closely tied to image and what others think of you, and more about doing the right thing and keeping one's word. It also seems to be strongly altruistic and focused on the next generation, given the tradition where during a long winter, quote, the old men gather up what strength remains in them and announce that they are going hunting. Some are found come spring. More are never seen again. And we'll get back to that idea shortly. The Northern Code is about honesty, loyalty and courage, duty and the value of life. When Ned tells Bran and his other sons about a condemned man, you owe it to him to look into his eyes. He's telling them that judgment must be a personal and honest thing. That he travelled to Bear Island to bring the king's justice to his vassal, Jorah Mormont, and Sir Jorah's obvious self-loathing as he recounted his own flight from that justice, really shows the depth of how seriously Ned takes his duty to law and order. When we talked about the culture of the North in our North Remembers episode, we noted that of the Northern laws that are specifically noted, those dealing with breaching guest right, kinslaying, treason, oath-breaking, and desertion are deemed specifically worthy of harsh judgment, most likely death. And again, what all those crimes have in common is their destabilizing nature. In a country where life is both hard and fragile, adherence to a code of conduct that values community is essential. Destabilizing the community by betraying one of these values, as Jorah did, must be met with harsh judgment to preserve the greater good. And speaking of the community, the World Book tells us about the winter town outside of Winterfell that we'd formerly heard of through the POVs of those who grew up at Winterfell. It says that winter town is filled to bursting in autumn and winter with those seeking the protection and patronage of Winterfell to help them survive the lean times. Not only do townsmen arrive from the outlying villages and crofts, but many a son and daughter of the mountain clans have been known to make their way to the winter town when the snows begin to fall in earnest. 
And in A Dance with Dragons, Jon Snow mentions the harsh life of the mountain clans and that, quote, when the snows fall and food grows scarce, their young must travel to the winter town or take service at one castle or the other. So it's obvious the value that stark patronage and protection have to the rural population, and without it, they might not survive the brutal winters when they arrive. But the winter town was burned by Ramsay Bolton during the sack of Winterfell, and with a predicted very long winter about to set in, we wonder not only about the fate of those rural people, who certainly can't look for assistance from the Boltons, but if that winter protection traditionally offered by the Stark has anything to do with the phrase, there must always be a Stark in Winterfell. Right, well, many people favour a supernatural explanation, and we agree there could be that element to it. We couldn't help but notice that during this upcoming long winter, without a Stark in Winterfell, things look very grim indeed for those people who would have traditionally sought their protection. Whether it's connected to the old saying or not, it seems to us that the consequences of there not being a Stark in Winterfell at this time are going to be extremely dire in a most tangible way. Yeah, and now, since we're talking about culture, let's talk about where the high value Ned places upon the lives of children may have come from culturally. We've mentioned just now that life in the North is of a fragile and brutal nature, with long winters making a stable society and pack mentality of extreme importance. As Ned told Arya, when the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. And old Nan also had some words of wisdom about what happened when the snows fall. Both John and Arya recall her lesson. During a long winter, men who'd lived beyond their years would announce that they were going hunting, and their daughters would weep and their sons would turn their faces to the fire. But no one would stop them or ask what game they meant to hunt, with the snows so deep and the cold wind howling. So, we mentioned this earlier, and the reason behind the old men doing this, of course, would be to ensure the survival of the fittest, a sort of altruistic social Darwinism aimed to support the next generation. So let's compare this to real life for a moment. While many experts pose that in real life, medieval children weren't valued because life was fragile and harsh, and there wasn't a culture of childhood such as we have today, there's actually not much evidence for the devaluing of children. In fact, one could make a case that the fragility of life, high infant and mother mortality, and susceptibility to childhood disease, accidents, and hunger, would actually have made parents value their children more. After all, medieval people could have been no less aware than modern parents are that their children represented the future. The importance of raising children to help in the household or in the family trade or farm or to carry on the family name really would only have emphasized their value. Well, the point is that we have indications from both real life and Westeros that children were recognized as the future and were valued as such. In the north, where life and the seasons were both uncertain and, as the stark words remind us, winter is always right around the corner, it would be very important to safeguard the future. 
So it could very well be that Ned's concern for the well-being of children comes as much from a cultural imperative as from his personal morality. But make no mistake, Ned's own personal code has a really strong impact on his decision-making process. Well, as we know, Ned and Robert quarreled after the heinous murder of Rhaegar's children by Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch. Later in King's Landing, acting as Robert's hand, the old quarrel seemed about to be reignited when Robert sought to hire assassins to kill Daenerys and her unborn child. As Barristan would later tell Danny herself, Eddard Stark played a part in your father's fall, but he bore you no ill will. When the eunuch Varys told us that you were with child, Robert wanted you killed, but Lord Stark spoke against it. Rather than countenance the murder of children, he told Robert to find himself another hand. And when Danny reminded the old knight about Rhaenys and Aegon, Barristan laid that crime at the Lannisters' door. Danny's initial refusal to buy that distinction led to some cognitive dissonance for her when she remembered the death of the child Hazia, caused by her uncontrollable dragon Drogon, and is arguably the beginning of a more mature and nuanced outlook for the young queen. But the reminder that the deaths of those children was Lannister work brings us back to King's Landing and Ned's meeting with Cersei in the Godswood of the Red Keep. Yeah, Ned requested a meeting with Cersei so that he could warn her of his intention to inform Robert of her infidelity and the parentage of her children. That this was a tactical error caused by Ned's concept of mercy for children is something we'll discuss in the next segment. But when Cersei challenges him about his own bastard, Jon Snow, and asks, Tell me, my honorable Lord Eddard, how are you any different from Robert, or me, or Jamie? Ned replies, For a start, I don't kill children. And that statement harks back to those dead Targaryen children, and to the clear and present danger to what we presume was his sister Lyanna's child, Jon that led him to claim the infant as his own. The meeting between Ned and Cersei also highlights the contrast between love and fear that we see when comparing Starks to Lannisters that we talked about in the last segment. Ned is trying to use his compassion to rid Robert of a problem, while Cersei responds with threats and ultimately violence. But while fear may have been more effective in the short term, as the pendulum of the story swings, we're starting to see things unravel for the powerful and feared Lannisters. While even when things looked very grim, we still find love and loyalty for House Stark. Yeah, even Tyrion Lannister must admit Lord Eddard is a proud, honourable and honest man. And while he wasn't necessarily being complimentary, this perception of Ned is what ensures that people of courage, loyalty, and honor routinely choose to serve him, and that he earned the respect of men like Barristan Selmy and Stannis Baratheon. And while earlier we mentioned that Ned was scorned by some for his honesty and adherence to his code of honor, and that there are people who might suppose Ned brought his fate upon himself... 
We'd argue that Ned was clear-eyed about the consequences of his decisions. Take his thoughts when he promised a young whore that he would tell Robert about his youngest bastard. I will, Ned had promised her. That was his curse. Robert would swear undying love and forget them before evenfall, but Ned Stark kept his vows. He thought of the promises he'd made Liana as she lay dying, and the price he'd paid to keep them. Hmm. The price he'd paid was surely steep, and yet the only regret we sense from Ned is that he couldn't talk to John and explain things to him. Just as when Lord Eddard Stark sat in judgment and sentenced a man to death, when Ned sat in judgment of himself, he looked it straight in the eye and arrived at an honest and personal verdict. And speaking of verdicts, in our next segment, we're going to continue our look at Ned's character and decision-making process as we consider the crimes of Lord Eddard Stark and allow you listeners to reach your own verdicts on a half a dozen or so of what readers perceive to be Ned's worst decisions. And to lead us in, here's a reading that really crystallizes what Ned Stark stands for as he tells Renly Baratheon that mercy is never a mistake. Mercy is never a mistake, Lord Renly. On the trident, Sir Barristan here cut down a dozen good men, Robert's friends and mine. When they brought him to us, grievously wounded and near death, Roose Bolton urged us to cut his throat. But your brother said... I will not kill a man for loyalty, nor for fighting well, and sent his own maester to tend Sir Barristan's wounds. He gave the king a long, cool look. Would that man were here today? Robert had shame enough to blush. It was not the same, he complained. Sir Barristan was a knight of the king's guard. Whereas Daenerys is a fourteen-year-old girl... Ned knew he was pushing this well past the point of wisdom, yet he could not keep silent. Robert, I ask you, what did we rise against Ares Targaryen for, if not to put an end to the murder of children? What's the best mattress for you? Well, if you're an egg or a kitten, check out the competition. But if you're a human person, put your body on a nectar mattress. As well as award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. So as Lady Gwyn mentioned, in this segment, we're going to take a look at Ned's decision-making process in a number of situations that are consistently judged by the fandom, for better or for worse. We're calling this the crimes of Eddard Stark because we're going to give the cases as we understand them and let you listeners decide why Ned did the things he did and when his actions were justified by the situations or not. In this segment, we are the prosecution and defence and you listeners are the jury. Yeah, and we think we'll be able to make some interesting connections regarding outcomes in the end. And we'll look at a number of cases from across four basic themes, justice, mercy, fraud, and treason. 
hopefully the evidence will leave you with some food for thought. So to jump right in, let's take on Ned's role as Executioner, which is the first role we see him in in Game of Thrones. There are three major decisions in this category that we'll examine. The judgments of Garrett of the Night's Watch, Lord Jorah Mormont, and Sir Gregor Clegane. Okay, so did Garrett deserve to die? In the prologue POV, we saw him grudgingly and to his own detriment follow orders until his commander and comrade were murdered. We don't know exactly what he saw, although we do hear that he was, quote, dead of fear, presumably from his experiences north of the wall, and that questions were asked and answers given, quote, before he was executed. So we, we don't know the details, but we can surmise that if Garrod saw what happened to Will and Waymar, he either couldn't or didn't tell Ned, or that Ned simply didn't believe him, perhaps he thought he was crazy, at least not enough to convey his last words to Lord Commander Mormont at Castle Black. Well, that Ned communicated some of the situation to Jor is made clear later in Game of Thrones when Jor tells Tyrion, Garrett was near as old as I am and longer on the wall, yet it would seem he forswore himself and fled. I should never have believed it, not of him, but Lord Eddard sent me his head from Winterfell. Of Royce, there's no word. One deserter and two men lost, and now Ben Stark, too, is gone missing. So it's clear that Ned sent word of the deserter and his head to Castle Black, but there's no word as to what happened to Waymar and Will, so we're left uncertain whether Garrett was able to convey that to Ned. Yeah, did Ned make a critical mistake in not putting greater stock in Garrett's answers, whatever they were? We should point out that very few people would have believed such stories at that point, although Lord Commander Mormont may have. And Jor may have suspected something nonetheless, since he went on to tell Tyrion... You must make them understand. I tell you, my lord, the darkness is coming. There are wild things in the woods, direwolves and mammoths and snow bears the size of aurochs, and I have seen darker shapes in my dreams. The fisherfolk near Eastwatch have glimpsed white walkers on the shore. Okay, so recalling Ned's words to Bran... The man was an oath-breaker, a deserter from the Night's Watch. No man is more dangerous. The deserter knows his life is forfeit if he is taken, so he will not flinch from any crime, no matter how vile. And given the northern taboo on oath-breaking, it seems like Garrett's fate was never in question. In this case, we think the issue was not the judgment itself, but the disconnect between the man's story and what Ned told the Night's Watch. Had Ned believed Garrett's last words, he not only could have warned the Watch, but given Jor Mormont's assertion that only the Night's Watch will stand between the realm and the darkness that sweeps from the north, he could have used his position in the kingdom to send more aid to them. And we'll leave it to you to decide how big of a failure that was. So another capital sentence Ned passed in his role as deliverer of the king's justice in the north was the condemnation of then-lord 
Jura Mormont for selling poachers to Tairoshi slavers. So, did Jura deserve to die? As Ned recalls, the Mormonts of Bear Island were an old house, proud and honourable, but their lands were cold and distant and poor. Sir Jura had tried to swell the family coffers by selling some poachers to a Tairoshi slaver. As the Mormonts were bannermen to the Starks, his crimes had dishonoured the North. Ned had made the long journey west to Bear Island, only to find when he arrived that Jura had taken ship beyond the reach of ice and the king's justice. Five years had passed since then. Jura's initial recounting is quite different. As he tried to justify his past to Danny, he told her that Ned, quote, took from me all I loved for the sake of a few lice-ridden poachers and his precious honor. But later he admits to his own shame over the matter. I did things it shames me to speak of, for gold, so Laness might keep her jewels, her harper, and her cook. In the end, it cost me all. When I heard that Edhard Stark was coming to Bear Island, I was so lost to honor that rather than stay and face his judgment, I took her with me into exile. Nothing mattered but our love, I told myself. We fled to Lys, where I sold my ship for gold to keep us. This seems pretty straightforward, and unless you're simply overcome with pity for Jorah, it's hard to see where we could second-guess this judgment. And we want to add that there's a strong possibility that Jor could have pled for mercy for his son and asked him to take the black. Would Jorah have agreed is anyone's guess, but it was his father's final wish for him, and we'll point out that if Theon, as low as he sunk in Clash, was ready to contemplate it as an option, we think perhaps Ned and Jorah could have reached an agreement in the end. And the final point of justice is Gregor Clegane. In A Game of Thrones, we see Ned condemn Sir Gregor to death based upon the words of the villagers from the Riverlands that Raymond Derry, Mark Piper, and Carol Vance brought before him. They describe the atrocities committed by raiders at Sherer and elsewhere, and describe the leader. He was armored like the rest, but there was no mistaking him all the same. It was the size of him, my lord. Those who say the giants are all dead never saw this one, I swear. Big as an ox he was, and a voice like stone breaking. And while the conclusion that this was Gregor Clegane seems inescapable, we have to point out that Ned, who famously quarrelled with his king about the deaths of Rhaenys and Aegon Targaryen, and has been reminded of that occasion more than once recently, won't have forgotten Gregor's role in past atrocities. So, as with Garrod, while the verdict Ned passed may not be the issue, but we do wonder if his well-known angst over the murder of children and Gregor's past history played a role in Ned's rush to send justice to hunt the mountain down. Yeah, I mean, given the obvious complication that Sir Gregor is Tywin's man, which Purcell brought up again and again during that court session... And that Ned was aware that the West was, quote, a tinderbox with armies massing on both sides of the Golden Tooth, we have to wonder what he really hoped to accomplish in sending a force of a hundred men to bring the king's justice to Sir Gregor. Did his past emotions color the decision? 
We'll leave that for you to judge. What's clear upon review is that Ned's decisions in these three seemingly minor cases would have lasting impacts on the narrative, with his brother Benjen missing on a mission to find two dead men that Garrod might have been able to tell Ned about, Jorah on the run in Essos ending up serving Daenerys, and the judgment against Gregor Clegane a spark to the conflict between Stark and Lannister, and leading to the formation of the Brotherhood Without Banners in the Riverlands. Okay, so our next point of consideration is the theme of mercy. In the reading we started with, we heard Ned tell Renly, mercy is never a mistake. But in a completely ironic twist, not long after that exchange, Ned met with Cersei in the Godswood of the Red Keep. As we mentioned in the last segment, out of compassion for her children, he decided to warn her that he was going to tell Robert what he knew about her and Jamie. Cersei's typically violent and impulsive response would ultimately lead to Robert and Ned's deaths and was one of the sparks in the War of the Five Kings. But what of Ned's decision-making? Was his mercy for Cersei a mistake? Well, Varys certainly seems to think it was. He tells Ned, For fifteen years I protected Robert from his enemies, but I could not protect him from his friends. What strange fit of madness led you to tell the Queen that you had learned the truth of Joffrey's birth? Ned's reply, The Madness of Mercy, highlights an interesting moral quandary that George has placed at the center of Ned's arc. Yeah, less than a hundred pages after Ned declared that Mercy was never a mistake to Renly, he fell into a trap that sometimes feels entirely avoidable. But let's go right to the source and review what George himself said in an interview about this very issue. He said, telling Cersei that he knew to give her time to run so he wouldn't have to kill her children was a mistake. But these are interesting moral issues for people to contemplate. Is mercy a mistake? Ned's mistake was merciful. If he had gone directly to Robert, Joffrey and Tommen and Mycella would have all been killed along with Cersei. So we're left with the quandary and the question. Did warning Cersei lead to Robert's death? Again, we have the word of Varys the Spider while Ned lay in the black cells. It was not wine that killed the king, it was your mercy. Now, this could be a clever bit of manipulation on Varys' part, given that it had already been made clear that Cersei plotted Robert's death for some time, at least going back to the tourney of the hand, and, as we suggested in our Tywin episode, possibly even much further. Was Varys feeding Ned's guilt in order to get him to agree to his plan, which, as we know, had everything to do with the Aegon plotting? On the other hand, if you believe Varys that in revealing his hand to Cersei, Ned's mercy killed Robert, and if you'd blame Ned's death on Robert dragging him to King's Landing in the first place, you get an inverse situation where the two friends inadvertently caused each other's deaths. And there's actually some symbolism to support that. 
and remembering that the direwolf from the first Bran POV was killed by a stag and that the white heart or stag that Robert was originally hunting in the Kingswood was killed by a wolf leading to Robert's drunken insistence on hunting the boar that eventually killed him. If you believe in omens, there's a pair of chilling ones right there. Hmm. So, Robert's death aside, the question of Ned's mercy comes down to the value you place upon the lives of innocent children. This is a fairly common thread in Ned's arc, to say the least, and one that we're definitely not through with yet. While it's been a factor in a couple of the examples we've considered so far, things are about to ramp up in that regard. We're about to look at aspects of Ned's arc that are almost exclusively about protecting the lives of children. And the next theme we'll explore is fraud, which we can look at through the lens of two situations, one very large and one less so, but still important to the course of the story. The case of Jon Snow is the first, and the most important to Ned's arc and the story as a whole. It began with Ned's promises to Lyanna, which most of us assume now included hiding the child's identity from everyone, including Robert. Yeah, and by the time Ned found his sister in her bed of blood at that abandoned watchtower in the Red Mountains of Dorne, Robert's hatred for Targaryens was monolithic. His rage at Rhaegar's apparent abduction of Lyanna had fueled the course of the rebellion and led ultimately to the crown prince's death at the Trident. He had turned away from the corpses of Rhaegar's children, declaring, I see no babes, only dragon spawn," which could only have heightened Ned's concern for his sister's newborn infant. And so Ned was left with no choice but to agree to hide the identity of the child in such a way that would forever reflect upon his own character. He lied to Robert and the entire kingdom, claiming the boy as his own and apparently told Robert the boy's mother was a woman named Wyla that he had met on a campaign. In the process, he allowed Robert to go on believing his own narrative of Liana's fate, abduction and rape by the crown prince, which could only fuel his outsized hatred for the Targaryen dynasty. Right, and it's the catch-22 of the lie. By not telling Robert the truth, the danger to Jon Snow actually became greater as the king's hatred calcified in the years following Lyanna's death. By Game of Thrones, Robert tells Ned, I will kill every Targaryen I can get my hands on until they are as dead as their dragons, and then I will piss on their graves. And just imagine the chill that must have given Ned when he thought about the true origins of the boy he'd grown to love as a son. In truth, Ned's arc throughout A Game of Thrones really illustrates his growing lack of trust in Robert. From the situation at Darry, with the danger to Arya and the death of the butcher's boy, to the orders to assassinate young Daenerys Targaryen and her unborn child, the deaths of a pair of Robert's bastards in Lannisport at the hands of Cersei and his persistent memories of Rhaegar's children 
We see Ned wondering about the character of his friend and failing to find reassurance that Robert would ever do anything but turn a blind eye to the murder of children. And we should note that Ned's disquiet on the matter was fueled by his lingering conviction that the true threat was from the Lannisters. From Rhaegar's children to Arya and the butcher's boy at Darry, those bastards in Lannisport, and ultimately Sansa in Cersei's hands following his arrest, we see Lannister involvement everywhere. And since Ned has carefully made note of Lannister influence surrounding his old friend, there can be no doubt that he felt entirely justified to the end in his decision to hide Jon Snow's origins, with his only regrets coming in his last days in the Black Cells, where he wished he could have talked with Jon. But the issue that some fans find most troubling is Ned's failure to share this secret with his wife Catelyn, especially given Cat's well-known resentment at having Jon Snow in their very household. While initially one could argue that Ned barely knew Catelyn and in keeping the secret he was adhering to a solemn vow made to his dying sister, many wonder why he didn't tell his wife the truth once their relationship had deepened to a strong mutual love and trust as we've seen it undoubtedly did. So the argument in favour of Ned's continued secrecy is usually presented as follows. First, that Kat may not have been as open in her resentment as the point of view structure of the novels implies. That is, we see her thoughts and feelings, but rarely words spoken aloud against John. In the exchange where she refused to allow John to stay at Winterfell when Ned went south, Ned's described as anguished and furious and calls her damnably cruel, is it possible that Ned's eyes were open to the depths of his wife's resentment only in that moment? Well, it's made plain that John felt it throughout his life. But it's possible Ned had never realised the true nature of the animosity his wife held for the boy. As Littlefinger would later tell him about Robert, he is practised at closing his eyes to things he would rather not see. We guess this could apply in the case of a man who wanted nothing more than domestic bliss with his wife and children. And the other, more significant factor in Ned keeping his secrets from Kat may have been her own and their children's safety. Yeah, we get a hint at that when Ned thinks of secrets. Some secrets are safer kept hidden. Some secrets are too dangerous to share. So to put it simply, by not telling his wife the truth, he shielded her with deniability. This is a common enough precept in law used the world over for much of history to shield certain individuals from being held responsible in matters of malfeasance. So while some would argue that Ned did Catelyn and John both a great wrong by hiding the truth from them, there's a strong case to be made that he thought he was protecting them in doing so. And of course, because of the abrupt and unforeseen end to Ned's life, we'll never know what he planned to do in the future. As Cat thinks in The Clash of Kings, Ned was gone now and his loves and his secrets had all died with him. Okay, and on a much smaller scale, perhaps, we see Ned perform another act of fraud 
in a Game of Thrones as his friend Robert lay dying. Robert is dictating his will to Ned, whom he names regent for his son Joffrey. Ned simply cannot bring himself to tell this mortally wounded friend the truth. Quote, Joffrey is not your son, he wanted to say, but the words would not come. The agony was written too plainly across Robert's face. He could not hurt him any more. And so instead it tells us where the king had said my son Joffrey, he scrawled my heir instead. The deceit made him feel soiled. The lies we tell for love, he thought. May the gods forgive me. So we have there a strong point of comparison between Ned, the arguable hero of Game of Thrones, and Jaime Lannister, arguably one of the biggest villains of the story at that point. The lies we tell for love is a strong correlate to the things I do for love, not only in language but in situation. Ned has lied to Robert about Jon Snow to protect him and continues to withhold the truth about Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella, not only to shield his friend from pain, but to protect those children from Robert's vengeance. Jamie pushed Bran from the tower for that very same reason, but the key difference, of course, was that lies aren't inherently violent while Jamie is actively causing harm. Well, from Ned's own POV, we see his nagging sense of doubt when faced with Cersei's defiance of the violence against Bran. Quote, Ned's thought, if it came to that, the life of some child I did not know against Rob and Sansa and Arya and Bran and Rickon, what would I do? Even more so, what would Catelyn do if it were Jon's life against the children of her body? He did not know. He prayed he never would. So, Ned has charted a course where he hopes his policy of protecting children from violence will never be at odds with his need to protect his own family. But in the case of Robert's will, it could be that he's sailing a bit too close to the wind. While the change to My Heir was a deceit designed to leave a loophole for Stannis to take the throne in the wake of Robert's death, we wonder how far Ned would have, or even could have, gone to protect Cersei's children if that had happened. In A Clash of Kings, with King's Landing under siege and Stannis's victory appearing imminent, the Lannisters seemed to fear that he would execute Cersei and her children. Could a living Ned Stark have prevented that from happening? Yeah, yet another moral conundrum to consider. All we can say is that, as it turned out, Ned's attempt at sidestepping the issue in the moment of Robert's death was actually nullified by the Lannisters' quick actions in seizing power, arresting Ned and destroying those documents Robert had left behind. Which leads us to our final theme for this segment treason. Okay, so we know that Ned confessed to treason on the steps of this great sept of Baelor. Here are his own words. I am Eddard Stark, Lord of Winterfell and Hand of the King, and I come before you to confess my treason in the sight of gods and men. I betrayed the faith of my king and the trust of my friend Robert. 
I swore to defend and protect his children, yet before his blood was cold, I plotted to depose and murder his son and seize the throne for myself. Let the High Septon and Baylor the Beloved and the Seven bear witness to the truth of what I say. Joffrey Baratheon is the one true heir to the Iron Throne, and by the grace of all the gods, Lord of the Seven Kingdom and Protector of the Realm. So, a shocking confession there, which the reader knows to be a tissue of complete lies. We know the origin of those lies from Ned's interview with Varys in the Black Cells and Cersei's own recollection in Dance. Varys and Littlefinger had worked out the terms and Ned Stark had swallowed his precious honour and confessed his treason to save his daughter's empty little head. So, as we've mentioned... Ned sacrificed his own honour to save his daughter's life, a decision which was really in keeping with other choices he made regarding children, if not with the common perception of his honour. The interesting question is whether Ned actually did commit treason. And technically, since Joffrey was the recognized and acknowledged heir of Robert Baratheon, it seems clear that in writing a letter to Stannis, asking him to sail to King's Landing and take the crown, he actually did. And Ned's own thoughts prove that he was well aware of the precipice he was balanced upon. Men would whisper afterward that Eddard Stark had betrayed his king's friendship and disinherited his sons. He could only hope that the gods would know better. Here we see Ned applying a fine distinction between one potentially treasonous act and another. As Robert lay dying, Rennie urged Ned to act to seize Cersei's children as insurance for the inevitable moment of Robert's death and the disputed succession. Ned coolly refused to take such action, saying... I will not dishonour Robert's last hours on earth by shedding blood in his halls and dragging frightened children from their beds. And yet we know that the expectation of Stannis' ascension was one of violence towards those very children. Varys spelt it out for Ned in the Black Cells, and significantly Ned seemed to agree and to stubbornly insist upon the rightness of his decision. Here's part of their exchange. So here is Cersei's nightmare. While her father and brother spend their power battling Starks and Tullys, Lord Stannis will land, proclaim himself king, and lop off her son's curly blonde head. Ned's reply? Stannis Baratheon is Robert's true heir. The throne is his by rights. I would welcome his ascent. So, in spite of the reasons he gave Renly, Ned ultimately chose what he perceived to be the right and honourable path over the lives of Cersei's children. Having given ample warning to Cersei, he assumed that he could take action, backed by the gold cloaks Littlefinger had promised to procure for him, hand over the crown to Stannis, and then return to Winterfell safely with his daughters to resume his peaceful life there. Unfortunately, and as we know, trusting Littlefinger was a tragic mistake for Ned. Yes, it was. 
And perhaps Ned found himself caught up in the same calculus Jamie and Cersei had been in when Jamie pushed Bran from that tower window. The life of another child versus the lives of his own. Was Stannis the only way Ned could see of extricating himself and his children from this deadly game he'd been swept into? Should Ned have swallowed his pride and allied with the Lannisters, as Varys suggested, or perhaps seized Cersei's children and allied with Renly? At that point, Renly wasn't talking openly of claiming the throne for himself, so his offer of advice and a hundred swords to help Ned protect his position might not have been in conflict with Ned's plan to summon Stannis. We see Ned's doubts with frightening prescience in his POV when he thinks, When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die, Cersei Lannister had told him in the Godswood. He found himself wondering if he had done the right thing by refusing Lord Renly's offer. He had no taste for these intrigues, and there was no honour in threatening children. And yet, if Cersei elected to fight rather than flee, he might well have need of Renly's hundred swords, and more besides. On the other hand, Ned had been involved in rebellion before and knew the costs well enough to wish to avoid another bloody interregnum. He no doubt still had hoped that Cersei would choose to safeguard her children as he himself would do and flee, and that Stannis could achieve a relatively peaceful transfer of power. As with Littlefinger, Ned's major mistake seems to have been in underestimating his opponents, or at least in judging them based upon his own value system. Yeah, Ned was definitely like a fish out of water when he came down to the south. So we're left with the inescapable conclusion that much of Ned's arc is about protecting children and the moral quandaries inherent in war and politics as they affect the next generation. As we mentioned in the last segment in A Game of Thrones, Maester Aemon asks John if Ned would sacrifice his honour for the ones he loves. Tell me, John, if the day should ever come when your Lord Father must needs choose between honour on the one hand and those he loves on the other, what would he do? And John had replied, he would do whatever was right no matter what. We'll leave it to you listeners to decide if John called it or not, and what the fine distinctions of what is right might be. And we'll continue with a look at the politics of King's Landing and its effects on innocence leading up to Ned's death in our next segment. But first, here's a word from today's sponsors. This episode of Radio Westeros is brought to you by Winterfell Life, offering you quality life insurance to support your loved ones in the unlikely event of your untimely death. We at Winterfell Life guarantee all benefits, even in cases of execution or murder. Should you, or your spouse, or both, suddenly be taken from your children in the prime of your lives, our agents will find your beneficiaries and pay the benefit no matter where they are. In hiding in a mountain fortress, undercover across the narrow sea, underground in the far north, or on an island populated with vicious cannibals. We'll even make sure your bastard child gets his fair share, as long as he doesn't get himself stabbed like his trueborn brother. We cover every unlikely scenario imaginable, and at Winterfell Life, we know you'll need it. 
for winter is coming, and it will be a winter such as this world has never seen. Winterfell life, because bad things happen to good families. Okay, now let's talk about some of the politicking in King's Landing. At the start of game, Ned receives word that his foster father and hand of the king, John Arryn, has died and King Robert is on his way to Winterfell for a reunion nine years in the making. The two men who were fostered together at the Eyrie had last seen each other during Greyjoy's rebellion, after which Ned had taken Balon Greyjoy's son as ward and returned to Winterfell to raise his family and rule the North. And when Robert arrives, Ned finds his friend physically much changed in those years. He's gained over eight stone and appears tired and unfit. When they descend into the crypts so that Robert can pay his respects to Lyanna, Robert eventually gets to the point of his long journey north. After speaking of John Aaron's death, Robert informs Ned he would make him his new hand. Ned's reaction gives us our first insight into the office and how he feels about the offer. The offer did not surprise him. What other reason could Robert have had for coming so far? The Hand of the King was the second most powerful man in the Seven Kingdoms. He spoke with the king's voice, commanded the king's armies, drafted the king's laws. At times he even sat upon the Iron Throne to dispense king's justice when the king was absent or sick or otherwise indisposed. Robert was offering him a responsibility as large as the realm itself. It was the last thing in the world he wanted. Well, Ned asks leave to consider the offer and talk to Catelyn, and over the next few chapters, Ned's internal monologue and words with his wife tell us much about his reservations. As we mentioned in the first segment, House Stark had remained politically isolated from the Seven Kingdoms for much of its history since the Targaryen Conquest. Except for briefly during the Dance of the Dragons and its aftermath, and in Lord Rickard's lifetime, Stark involvement in Southern politics had been rather limited, and with the exception of Lord Cregan, deadly. And Ned feels a strong sense of foreboding there in the crypts, thinking this was his place here in the North. And when he brings the situation to Catelyn... He tells her he's decided, My duties are here in the North. I have no wish to be Robert's hand. But his wife cautions him. He will not understand that. He is a king now, and kings are not like other men. If you refuse to serve him, he will wonder why, and sooner or later he will begin to suspect that you oppose him. Can't you see the danger that would put us in? Ned protests that he knows Robert would never harm him or his family, but again Catelyn cautions him, You knew the man. The king is a stranger to you. And into this conversation, Maester Lewin arrives with a coded message from Liza Arryn, telling Catelyn that her husband, the former Hand, was murdered by the Lannisters. Cat tries to push her point home again, telling Ned, You must be Robert's Hand. You must go south with him and learn the truth. But Ned is reminded of the past and tells her, the only truths I know are here. The South is a nest of adders I would do better to avoid. Adding for Lewin's benefit, My father went south once to answer the summons of a king. He never came home again. 
But in the end, Ned is convinced that the danger of refusing is too great, and he agrees to go south with Robert, swallowing his anguish and reservations and unwillingly following the path his father had once dreamed of for his children. So we're given a lot of insight early on into the Lannisters as the villains of the story. The Queen is accused of murdering John Arryn. Ned obviously has a long-held hatred for her father Tywin concerning his, quote, slaughter of innocents and the dishonorable sack of King's Landing during the Rebellion, and a deep suspicion of Jaime rooted in his murder of King Aerys during the sack. During the journey south, Ned tries to navigate the dangerous territory of getting Robert to see the dangerous influence of his wife's family, which culminates in the situation at Derry and the first open conflict between Queen and Hand. While Ned is able to save his own daughter from punishment in the alleged attack upon Joffrey, he can do nothing for Micah, the butcher's boy, brutally executed by Joffrey's sworn shield, Sandor Clegane, on the Queen's orders. And when the Queen calls for the execution of Sansa's innocent direwolf in place of Arya's missing one, Ned is unable to get Robert to gainsay her. That he himself carries out the sentence and sends Lady's body back to Winterfell to deny Cersei the pelt is perhaps a minor victory which can only have rankled with the proud queen. And upon Ned's arrival in King's Landing, he is summoned to a meeting of the small council where he finds four of his fellow councillors, three of whom he is already acquainted with, Varys, Pycelle, and Renly. This is Ned's first rather tense introduction to Peter Baelish, and it's an exchange that says a lot about both men. Here's the passage. I've hoped to meet you for some years, Lord Stark. No doubt Lady Catelyn has mentioned me to you. She has, Ned replied with a chill in his voice. The sly arrogance of the comment rankled him. I understand you knew my brother Brandon as well. Renly Baratheon laughed. Varys shuffled over to listen. Rather too well, Littlefinger said. I still carry a token of his esteem. Did Brandon speak of me too? Often and with some heat, Ned said, hoping that would end it. He had no patience with this game they played, this dueling with words. "'I should have thought that heat ill suits you, Starks,' Littlefinger said. "'Here in the south, they say, you are all made of ice and melt when you ride below the neck. "'I do not plan on melting soon, Lord Baelish. You may count on it.'" So this is very much a point-counterpoint exchange, which from the outset highlights Littlefinger as sly and it makes note of the game that's being played. And we have to say, even though Ned thinks he has no patience for it, he did score a point when he turned Baelish's initial arrogant comment back on him with the reference to his duel with Brandon. But reading between the lines... We have to award the victory in that exchange altogether to Littlefinger for his comment on Stark's melting south of the neck. Is he making a joke? Referring to the long-standing insularity of the Starks? Commenting on past events that affected Ned's family? Making a veiled threat? Or all of the above? Yeah, we'd have to go with all of the above, and for that reason, give Littlefinger the point there. 
As Ned surveys the four men in the room with him, it says, It struck Eddard Stark forcefully that he did not belong here, in this room, with these men. He remembered what Robert had told him in the crypts below Winterfell. I am surrounded by flatterers and fools, the king had insisted. Ned looked down the council table and wondered which were the flatterers and which the fools. He thought he knew already. Yeah, so despite being admittedly way out of his element, Ned actually does show some flashes of political insight on occasion. And as Ned settles into the task of ruling in Robert's name, he's increasingly disturbed by the power the Queen's family wields in the capital, by Robert's disinterest in the state of the realm and by his own incompatibility with the game they played. The only matter the king seems to take any interest in is the fate of Daenerys Targaryen and the two really quarrel over that. Ned makes it very clear that he will have no part in the murder of children and then he resigns his post. He says, I will not be part of murder, Robert. Do as you will, but do not ask me to fix my seal to it. In the meantime, Ned had been investigating the cause of John Aaron's death. He questioned Pycelle and as many of the former hands household as he could locate, aided in this by none other than Littlefinger. Pycelle assured Ned that Aaron's death was natural and gave him the book John Aaron was reading before he died, quote, a ponderous tome by Grand Maester Malion on the lineages of the great houses. He also assured Ned that the Queen was on a visit to Casterly Rock when Lord Aaron died. At the time of his resignation, Ned seemed no closer to finding the truth of John Aaron's death, though he was troubled by a connection between the former Hand and the King's brother, Stannis, who departed King's Landing not long after Robert set out for the North. He had discovered Gendry in Tobomot's forge, and a tale that Arryn and Stannis visited a brothel together as well as the forge, but he couldn't make heads nor tails of it. So enter Littlefinger, who had been so helpful in finding Lord Arryn's former servants, with an offer to bring Ned to the very brothel. And this is where Ned met baby Bera and her mother and had those visceral memories of his sister and Rhaegar Targaryen we discussed earlier. As he made his way back to the Red Keep, he was ambushed by Jamie Lannister on account of Catelyn's seizure of Tyrion in the Riverlands, and Ned suffered a broken leg while Jory Cassell and two others from his guard were killed. In the aftermath, Robert reinstated him as Hand and decided to go hunting. It's clear that relations between the king and the queen were strained to a breaking point, while Cersei had become openly combative towards Ned. Yeah, we can almost feel the web of fate tightening around these characters, as Stark and Lannister are now really at each other's throats, and open hostilities between the two seem imminent, as Arya overheard Varys telling Illyrio. Jamie returned to the Westerlands to raise an army, and the Tullys were calling their banners. Ned sent Beric Dondarrion and company to bring Gregor Clegane to justice and prepared his daughters for their imminent departure from King's Landing. And naturally, Sansa was destitute 
she still thought that she was to marry Joffrey and couldn't understand this change in plans. As she tearfully pleaded her case, she commented that Joffrey was a lion. Arya reminded her that he's not. He's a stag. Sansa's retort, he is not. He's not the least bit like that old drunken king, was the nudge Ned finally needed to understand all the clues he'd been shown. The book, the bastards, the apparent alliance between Aaron and Stannis. And Ned knew that there were very few people in the city that he could trust. But his own personal code of mercy and justice spurred him onwards. He recalled Rhaegar's children again, and knowing that Robert could never forgive Cersei's treason, thought he, quote, could not let that happen again. The realm could not withstand a second Mad King, another dance of blood and vengeance. He must find some way to save the children. And so Ned made a fateful decision that he would warn Cersei that honour compelled him to inform the king of what he knew. And Cersei, of course, was singularly unmoved by Ned's mercy, telling him, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. And we've already discussed the outcome of that meeting in the Godswood, Cersei's proud refusal to flee and the escalation of her plan to rid herself of Robert, Ned's arrest and the danger to Sansa. Ned sat his hand for less than three months, and while he discovered what Littlefinger wanted him to discover about John Arryn's death, his time in King's Landing was mainly marked by his increasing discomfort with the game, and the alienation of not only the Lannisters, who were hardly allies to begin with, but anyone else who was in a position to make alliances. Varys, Pycelle, Renly, and Littlefinger, who, in retrospect, all had their own agendas already firmly in place. Yeah, they did. And after Ned's arrest, Varys visited him in the Black Cells, as we've mentioned, and cautioned him that the Queen holds Sansa. He reminded Ned of Rhaenys, killed by Lannister guardsmen, and posed Ned a question. The High Septon once told me that as we sin, so do we suffer. If that's true, Lord Eddard, tell me, why is it always the innocents who suffer most? When you high lords play your game of thrones, ponder it, if you would, while you wait upon the queen. And obviously this was meant as a warning of what the Lannisters could do to Sansa, a carrot to get Ned to agree to Varys' plan, which we think was meant to forestall open aggression between the wolf and the lion just long enough for the spider and the cheesemonger to set their own plans in motion. Of course, we've already discussed the outcome, which came about in no small part because Littlefinger had other ideas, and what could have been a dynastic struggle between Robert's acknowledged heir and his two brothers erupted into the War of the Five Kings, which would devastate Westeros in the months that followed. But the question remains, and from the Varys quote, why is it always the innocents who suffer? And we think this is one of the key moral problems George poses to us in the texts, and Ned's arc is the vehicle he uses most effectively to explore it. It's part of Ned's personal code of honour to abhor the suffering of innocence, and the point is made again and again. Yet in the end, even the most careful and honourable man couldn't prevent such suffering. Consider the point we made in the last segment 
that if Ned had extricated himself and his children from King's Landing and been successful in summoning Stannis to rule, Cersei's children would have become casualties. In the end, there was no way out of the double bind and Varys seems to have been proven correct. Yeah, but we should remember that there remains a lot of story to be told and the Stark legacy is still unfolding. And in our final segment, we'll discuss the impact of Ned's arc on the narrative and his legacy in the lives of his children and beyond. To lead us out, here's a reading of the final moments of Ned's life as witnessed by Sansa and seen through the eyes of his daughter Arya. The High Septon knelt before Joffrey and his mother. As we sin, so do we suffer, he intoned, in a deep, swelling voice, much louder than father's. This man has confessed his crimes in the sight of gods and men, here in this holy place. Rainbows danced around his head as he lifted his hands in entreaty. The gods are just, yet blessed Baylor taught us that they are also merciful. What shall be done with this traitor, your grace? A thousand voices were screaming, but Arya never heard them. Prince Joffrey, no, King Joffrey, stepped out from behind the shields of his king's guard. My mother bids me let Lord Eddard take the black, and Lady Sansa has begged mercy for her father. He looked straight at Sansa then and smiled, and for a moment Arya thought that the gods had heard her prayer until Joffrey turned back to the crowd and said, But they have the soft hearts of women. So long as I am your king, treason shall never go unpunished. Sir Ilin, bring me his head. So we're led to believe throughout A Game of Thrones that Ned Stark is the main character of the story. House Stark is clearly set up to be in conflict with the antagonist Lannisters and we see character development consistent with a hero only to have the rug really pulled right out from under us when Joffrey calls for Ned's head in Arya's final POV chapter. Typical George R.R. R. Martin, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, a Song of Ice and Fire is kind of a poster child for the idea that anyone can die at any time. But in setting up Ned as a decoy protagonist, George not only hooks us into the story, but sets up a plot line that's consistent with the world he's created, and which also provides the shocking scene from which so much of the rest of the drama flows. Yeah, the storylines of all the POV characters in Westeros, even including some in far-flung Essos, are directly impacted by the death of Ned Stark in the first book. Consider the War of the Five Kings, the tribulations of Arya and Sansa, Theon's betrayal and Bran's flight to the very far north, 
John's character development and the Red Wedding, Joffrey's death and Cersei's march from Proud Queen to, dare we say, madness, Jamie's capture, maiming and ultimate redemption arc, the acceleration and redirection of the plotting surrounding Aegon, the list goes on and on. And none of these things would have happened in remotely the same way without Ned's death early in the series. Well, as the first book in the series, Game of Thrones is supposed to ground us in the storyline and arcs of the main characters. But with the sudden death of the character who appeared to be the classic good guy hero, we're put on notice that something very different is going on with this story. And obviously none of us are strangers to that fact or to the continued succession of gut-wrenching deaths that we're subjected to as the novels progress. Yeah, I remember a few years ago now, someone who I had recommended A Song of Ice and Fire to asked me, does anything good ever happen? And honestly, on a plot detail level, the examples seemed few and far between. But on a kind of meta level, I think it could be a different answer. And the continued influence or legacy of Ned Stark could be a prime example of that. Okay, so from a purely meta standpoint, there's the fact that most readers continue to cheer for House Stark against all odds, due in no small part to Ned's Game of Thrones arc. And beyond that, through analysis of the story, we can perceive not only a persistent loyalty to Ned and House Stark, but also a gradual upswing in their fortunes. And, though now abandoned, one of George's working titles for the final volume of the series, A Time for Wolves, may have hinted at this, although perhaps not in the way you might think. Right, at first glance, that seems like it might indicate some kind of happy or triumphant ending for our heroes, the Starks. But in light of this quote we've used a couple of times today, Let me tell you something about Wolves, child. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Summer is the time for squabbles. In winter, we must protect one another, keep each other warm, share our strengths. So we think it's possible that with winter having arrived, Ned's words to Arya about pack dynamics may turn out to be somewhat predictive of upcoming instalments. In other words, winter is a time for the wolf pack to survive. And throughout the books and sample chapters we've received to date, there does seem to be this subtle upswing that we mentioned, and as hinted by the phrase, the pack survives. Well, we mentioned how Ned's parenting style fostered this pack dynamic among his children, who we don't see being engaged in any long-term conflict, such as we see with the dramatically contrasting Lannister siblings, who all seem to want to kill each other. And sure enough, we have strong hints that Arya, Jon, Sansa, and Bran are all poised to come into their own in the Winds of Winter and beyond. And they continue to think of one another with the longing for family that only exile and separation can bring about. Okay, and what about the rest of the characters? There are other places where the legacy of Ned Stark could have a very strong impact. 
Take Stannis, currently snowed in at an icy crofter's village, not far from Winterfell, contemplating retaking the ancestral Stark home from the hated Boltons, with an army comprised in part of Northerners who are very, very strongly motivated by their loyalty to Ned and Ned's girl. And if we take into account the possibility that there are people within Winterfell plotting against the Boltons, Ned's legacy of loyal bannermen stands as the major rallying point for resistance against the Boltons. And let's not forget that Skagos, where Rickon apparently ended up, is still a relatively unknown quantity. It remains to be seen if the Skagosi are outliers to northern culture, or if they're bound by a similar code. To see if the Skagosi are loyal to the Starks would be a further indicator of the reach of Ned's legacy, and something we're looking forward to finding out about in The Winds of Winter. Well, what's unique about the political situation in the North is that a relatively unified population working against a common foe, the Boltons, could be the single factor working in favour of Westeros as the others gather strength beyond the wall. With the South in complete political disarray, the initial burden of any invasion from the North will be taken by a people whose only hope lies in presenting a very strong unified front, a truth that Stannis Baratheon seems to grasp due to his reliance on Melisandre's admittedly unreliable predictive flame readings and so on. And while Ned's legacy doesn't appear to have any direct bearing on further-flung places like Dorne and Slaver's Bay and even King's Landing at this point, we shouldn't forget the points we started with, that the initial course of Ned's arc and his death had an undeniable impact on some of those plot arcs, at least in terms of sparking events that caused other events and so on. And of course, Ned's children continue to impact other regions, such as Sansa and the Vale and Arya and Bravos and Brienne's quest for Sansa in the Riverlands, which had intersected with Jamie's arc when we last saw them. In fact, we can't deny that whatever happens in the Riverlands next is going to be 100% influenced by Ned's fate and the fate of his family. And finally, what might be the single most important aspect of Ned's legacy is the case of Jon Snow. Jon is expected to be very important to the endgame of A Song of Ice and Fire, and is widely accepted by the fandom as a Targaryen in hiding. When Jon discovers the secret of his background, we expect no small amount of cognitive dissonance within him. He's identified so strongly as the son of Ned Stark, and clearly absorbed much of Ned's lessons and personality on his journey to becoming the leader he is. While ultimately we think Ned is John's father, no matter who sired him, and that John could discover that wisdom within himself, there should be some interesting internal struggles around that point. And if John is the prince that was promised, then Ned's legacy on the end game is profound, because it could turn out that he, the decoy protagonist, actually is the hero of the story, in a way. 
The man who sacrificed his own honor for the life of a child, who raised that child as his own while lying to everyone in his life about the boy's origins, could ultimately be the man who saved the Savior, which would almost be in keeping with the expectations so many readers might have had for Ned Stark in those foundational chapters of Game of Thrones. And when you think about it, those chapters showed us a heroic man who left his comfort zone, his place, in order to do the most good for his family, his friend Robert, and for the realm. Just as he had done with Jon Snow all those years before, Ned didn't shy away from sacrifice to do the right thing, no matter what. As John assured Maester Aemon he would back in A Game of Thrones. As he lay in the black cells, Ned remembered Cersei telling him in the Godswood, When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. The memory had filled him with grief and rage, but we think that in the end, while Ned may not have won the Game of Thrones, he perhaps won other grander victories elsewhere. Here yeah, the price he paid was very high indeed, the ultimate price in fact, but he preserved the life of Jon Snow, which Westeros may have cause to thank him for, and his surviving children are poised to face winter and perhaps be united, whether physically or not, at least in terms of facing a common danger from the others, something that we can't say of the Lannisters, who, as we pointed out, really all want to kill each other at this stage. <laughs> right. And so while Ned's foreboding at leaving Winterfell may have been well-placed, now that winter has come, we can make a case that his arc wasn't in vain. He protected young innocents and his family at all costs, which was in keeping with the northern code of valuing the next generation in the face of a long, hard winter. Robert once told Ned, "'You never could lie for love nor honor. But Ned proved him wrong in the end. During his life, he lied for honor and for love, and he found himself in moral dilemmas with his heart firmly in conflict with itself. Yet, despite the greatness of his arc, Ned can ultimately be remembered as a heroic figure trying to do the right thing in a very complicated world. And through his legacy, we expect to see his influence still resonating into the winds of winter and beyond. For a moment, Eddard Stark was filled with a terrible sense of foreboding. This was his place, here in the north. He looked at the stone figures all around them, breathed deep in the chill silence of the crypt. He could feel the eyes of the dead. They were all listening, he knew, and winter was coming. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our look at Ned Stark. Up next, we'll have an episode all about Robert Baratheon and Robert's Rebellion, so we hope you'll come back for that. Now, as usual, it's time to give credit where credit is due. Thanks, as always, to George R.R. R. Martin for A Song of Ice and Fire and all the food for thought, and to Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use elements of his music in our production. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also donate and comment on our content there, or find us on YouTube. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time with Robert. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>